Um, I'm going to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 14. If you're here last week, what I said last week was that the sermon was an introduction to this week. <laughs> so let me recap real quick. We'll start with this. All right, we got some wind up here. This is going to be interesting. Hopefully it's all in my mind, right? We believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's good news. It's an announcement. It's not an announcement of the things we need to do to earn our way back to God. It's an announcement of what God has already done. It's an announcement of finished work. It's an announcement of an accomplishment. And if you're not a Christian and you're joining us this morning, first of all, welcome. So glad you're here. And I want to invite you to come back next week. And I also want to tell you why it is that we find it so valuable to gather in what we're doing here. We believe that though we have sinned against a holy God, and though we have deserved nothing but God's righteous condemnation, that we somehow are going to be in heaven. And it's not because we're good. It's not because God somehow just swept sins under the rug. It's because of this thing we call gospel. And the gospel is this, that God is rich in mercy, that God is kind and compassionate, and God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth to live the perfect life that we could never have lived, voluntarily going to the cross to die for the sins that we committed, and then on the third day rose again from the dead, conquering sin, death, hell, and now is alive right now, inviting everyone to turn from their sin or turn from their self-righteousness and cast themselves upon the grace of God. We believe that that's the only way anyone will ever be saved. It's the only way anyone will ever be brought to heaven is that we are saved by the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. And so Jesus has come. Jesus has made Himself available Jesus died for guilty sinners, and if you recognize that you are a guilty sinner and that you have a problem before a holy God, I want to tell you right now, your sins can be totally forgiven. You can be washed clean. You can be reconciled to God, and you can be welcomed into his presence, and you have the promise and the guarantee of eternal life. That is so glorious that we want to gather together and worship our God. Amen? that we want to sing his praises. We want to serve him till he takes us home. And that is part of, that is not part, that is why we live as Christians. We are thrilled at the reality of what Jesus has done for us, and we are dead set on living for him while we have breath in our lungs. Now, the gospel not only reconciles us to God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Additionally, the gospel reconciles us to each other. This was the point of last week's message. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, we spoke of how in Christ, distinction, barriers are obliterated, and we are united in Christ. We share Christ as a common Savior. We share the Holy Spirit that draws us together. And so if you read the New Testament, we encounter all kinds of different metaphors that describe the nature of the church. Here's a few of them. The church is a body. That means that some of us are eyes, and some of us are noses, and some of us are mouths and hands and feet. We're all different. None of us are the same. And yet, the Scriptures say we are a body. 
that is a unity of differing parts. Another metaphor for the church, we're a family. First Timothy, we're called the household of God. We are God's household. We are his family. It's like he's the father, we're all his children. We're all the same family here in Christ. It's a unity that we have. In 1 Peter, we're described as each one of us like living stones, that we are all being built together into a spiritual house with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And so all throughout the New Testament, we could go on, there are metaphors that describe this unity, this supernatural and transcendent unity that we are to share as the people of God. This is amazing reality, and when churches focus on the gospel and get this right, it creates this beautiful, transcendent unity that is enjoyed. And I experience the unity in this church, right? We have unity with people who are different from us, different backgrounds than us, and we get to share the same Savior and the same gospel. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, because we're united in Christ, let me ask you this. Does that mean that we are going to share the same opinion about every gray area matter? No. No, we're not. In other words, in the church, though there is this supernatural unity that we all have, the Bible's very clear and actually addresses it, and this is what we're going to look at in Romans 14. You could start turning there, that it is we, it is uh, expected that even in the church with people who agree on the big things, the nature of God and the nature of man and the nature of salvation, the people who agree on those things will have different perspectives on certain gray areas, opinions. I sent out an email last week and asked some guys that if you can think of some controversial topics that Christians disagree on, Hey, send me back an email. What are some of your ideas? What are the, what are the big ideas, the controversial topics of today? I jot, jotted some of them down. The coronavirus is all overblown versus the coronavirus is a real dangerous threat. You've seen these opinions, I'm sure. Another opinion, we should all be wearing masks versus... We should all be taking off our masks. Strongly held on both sides. Let's get a little political because we know that this is where a lot of differences lie, even in the body of Christ. Donald Trump is a national hero versus Donald Trump is the devil incarnate. Another different opinion. No Christian should ever protest versus Christians have a right to protest. There's another one. This will touch a nerve. America doesn't have a race problem versus America has a huge problem with racism. You guys are hearing these, right? If you came to get my opinion on all these things, that's not what you're going to get this morning. Not even going to go there. What I am going to do is going to talk about what the Bible says about how in the world people with strong opinions about these things and the list goes on. There are several more things that I could bring up where Christians are of differing opinions about things that are not explicitly taught in the Bible. Okay? But how do we maintain supernatural, real, self-sacrificing unity 
in the midst of opinions that we hold very close. I want you to be in uh, Romans 14 if you're not already there. I want you to turn there. I'm going to read verses 1 to 12. Verses 1 to 12. And from these, we're going to get five commitments that we need to make. Five commitments we need to make as a church family. If we are going to maintain the unity in a time where there's all kinds of strong opinions, we're going to need to know how to navigate strong opinions. And I praise the Lord that the Bible speaks to this issue, this very issue of how do we handle when people have differing opinions on things that are not clear in the Bible. Romans 14, follow along with me, starting in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that we might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why, or, or you, why do you despise your brother? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We're going to get five commitments from these verses. I want you first to look at verse 1, where he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And I want you to mark, we can't say everything there is to say about these verses, not in this context right now, but you can explore those on your own. What I want to draw out now is just look at that word opinions. Opinions. Jesus uses this word when he's talking with the Pharisees and he's referring to the Pharisees coming up in their own mind the reasons for doing the things they do. Why do you reason thus in your hearts, Jesus says? Reasons. Uh, what an opinion is, is not, let's be clear on what it isn't, an opinion is not something clearly taught in the Word of God. It's not sound doctrine. It's not a matter of explicit biblical teaching. An opinion is something beyond that in the gray area. It's something that's not explicit. It's something that you draw your own conclusion through the reasoning that you have, that you think through. As you think through life and you think through how to live for the Lord, you reason out what is the best thing for you to do in any given moment, in any given situation, and you draw a, a conclusion, and that is called here an opinion. It's not black or white stuff here. We're talking about stuff that's gray. It's, it's opinion stuff. Now, here's our first point. Number one commitment. We're going to remain faithful as a church and remain united. Here it is. Commitment number one. 
I will not be surprised that people have different opinions. Let's start with that. Because Paul makes it clear that there are not, there's not to be quarreling over opinions. And his assumption then is that there's such thing as opinions. Opinions exist. That you and I will have different opinions. Me and my own wife, as united as we may be, have different opinions about certain things. doesn't mean we love each other less. It means we have different opinions. For example, it takes me about one minute to get ready for bed at night. For whatever reason, it takes her like 45 minutes. Like my opinion is it should be able to be done in one minute or less. I don't know what it is with women. It just takes forever to get, it's like you got to check every door in the house. You got to clean every little thing up. And we have two totally different definitions of what it means to get ready for bed, right? So you're thinking about something else in your own marriage if you're married or with your family or your kids. Everyone's got different opinions. Now that's kind of a silly thing there. But what I'm saying is, is that even when it comes to living the Christian life, you will come to different conclusions about what is best to do. You will say, I think it needs to be done this way. And your brother or your sister in Christ will say, I think it needs to be done this way. Let's just start here. There will be different opinions. Let's not be surprised. In a different opinion, let's also just know a different opinion. Does that mean we're not united? No. It means we have a different opinion. We need to know how to navigate different opinions. The example he gives there in verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything. This person maybe didn't come out of a Jewish background. A Jewish background might have been very concerned about what he ate because he was so used to dietary restrictions. But maybe someone was a pagan, and then they got saved, and by the gospel they're welcomed into the church, and they have no no problem with eating any kind of food. And there's different kind of people that have different problems. Ah, I don't know if I can eat that. Well, in the church, one person believes he made anything. Another person only eats vegetables. Uh, and look at what he's saying. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. So here's our commitment number one. I will not be surprised that people have different opinions than me. Now, I want to tell you, commitment number two, I will not quarrel, despise, or judge people who disagree with me. All those words are right there in the text. I will not quarrel, despise, or judge people who disagree with me. See, disagreement is going to happen in the body of Christ when it comes to opinions. Think of even Christ's disciples. Did you know that one of Christ's disciples was Matthew the tax collector, and another one of Jesus' disciples was Simon the zealot? Now, politically, these guys are so different than even Republicans and Democrats of our day. In fact, one writer described their relationship like this. Matthew had worked for the government. Simon wanted to burn it down. An Occupy Wall Street protester and a Tea Party patriot would have had more in common than these two. Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot had nothing in common except the fact that they were following Jesus. So this is the reality. There will be different opinions, but we, what we are not allowed to do, according to the text, is quarrel, despise, or judge. Let's look at those words, quarrel. It says, 
uh, welcome him, in verse 1, but not to quarrel over opinions. Quarrel has to do with words. That means you don't engage in verbal conflict. That means you don't get in arguments where you're just trying to one-up someone. You're trying to win the argument. You're more concerned about the argument than you are about the person. That's quarreling. You're also not to despise. You see that in verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Despise speaks less about words and more about an attitude. That you're not allowed to look at someone who has chosen something different than you and look down at them, belittle them in your mind, think of them as less than because they've come to a different conclusion. You're not allowed to judge. In this context, this means that you're acting like you're the moral authority on the matter, that your conclusion is the only conclusion, and you are a judge then, and you condemn people in your hearts. That's what it is to judge, to look down on them. Put yourself on a pedestal and look down on people. And so our second commitment, based on what these verses are saying, we will not quarrel, we will not despise, we will not judge people who disagree. Can we talk about disagreements? Absolutely. In fact, that's some of the way to really understand one another and, and, and embrace one another is to talk and be open about things that we don't necessarily see eye to eye on. But here's the problem with our society today. We're not very good at that, right? We're not very good at talking to people who disagree with us without demonizing them. And so as Christians, we gotta be totally countercultural in this matter we got to be the kind of people who know how to talk about something we disagree with and yet can totally embrace and affirm brothers and sisters in Christ who believe the same gospel. What are we to do instead of quarreling, despising, or judging? The word comes up twice in verse 1 and again in verse 3. Welcome. You see that? Don't quarrel, but you welcome them. It says the idea of hospitality. This word welcome is actually used in the book of Acts. It's interesting how this book or this word is used. When Paul went to Malta, this island, and there were these native people there, it began to rain. Paul was there and in some measure of discomfort because of the rain. It says the natives came and showed, I'll actually read it to you, Acts 28, verse 2. The native people came, showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us. So here they are in discomfort, and these people come, they welcome them in, they build a fire, they show them, it says, unusual kindness. You see, this is the Christian way of de dealing with disagreement. You don't despise, you don't quarrel, you don't judge, you welcome. That is, you show extraordinary kindness to people who disagree with you. That doesn't mean you have to change what you believe. In fact, we're going get to get to talk about that in a second. But on matters that are not clearly delineated in Scripture, we are just kind and welcoming and hospitable to people who come to different conclusions on how they ought to live, how they ought to vote, decisions they, ought, they are making. So commitment number one, I'm not going to be surprised that people have different opinions. Commitment number two, I'm not going to quarrel, despise, or judge people with different opinions. Here's commitment number three, straight out of the text. I will leave the final evaluation in the Lord's hands. I will leave the final evaluation in the Lord's hands. Look at verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? That's a rhetorical question. His, his point is to say, you're not in the position of authority. You're not in the position to be able to make claims of, of knowing exactly what people are doing, right or wrong, especially in gray areas. 
we can evaluate obedience versus disobedience when we're evaluating according to what is clearly delineated in Scripture. But when it's not clearly delineated, we don't have the authority to stand up as someone's judge. We leave that in God's hands. Now, let me be clear about something. I've got to keep saying this. We're not moral relativists, okay? We're not saying that everyone and every decision is all equally good. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that we, as finite, limited human beings, as people who are not God and cannot see into the hearts of men, that we are not in a position of authority, in a position of knowledge, to be able to make such evaluations on gray areas of people's lives. That's not our our spot. So what do we do? We leave the evaluation in the Lord's hands. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Let's use an illustration here. Imagine you own a business, and you're trying to do your best to build that business and make it a healthy, fruitful business. And you hire someone to do a job, and you delineate exactly what that job is. Now imagine I show up to your business, and I'm watching the guy you hired doing his job, and I sit there critiquing him. He's doing a horrible job. He should be doing it this way. I like better when he performs this way. Now at the end of the day, you know why that doesn't matter? Because I'm not the boss, okay? The boss at the end of the day is going to evaluate if the guy is doing his job or not. It's not my position to make that evaluative claim. The uh, the boss will make the decision. That's the argument that Paul's making here. It's before his own master that he stands or falls. Listen, you and I will stand before King Jesus, and we will give an account for our lives, and he will know exactly our hearts. He will know exactly what we did and why we did it, And he will make the perfect evaluative judgment on our lives. And so we are not to stand here as judges over one another, making judgment calls on others. We are not each other's masters. Jesus is the only master. This is not our lane. We don't jump into other people's lanes and make judgment calls on gray area decisions of other Christians' lives. That's our third commitment. We're going to leave Evaluation in the Lord's hands. Commitment number four. I will not pressure others to violate their consciences. Look at verse five. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Let's just context real real quick. You had Jews and Gentiles in this church. Jews would have been taught all their life that the Sabbath was something special to be revered. And they needed to live entirely different on the Sabbath, no work, no nothing on the Sabbath. And there were Gentiles that had no such upbringing. And they both saved in the gospel, and they both come in. And the Jews are thinking, man, the Sabbath is the special day. we got to make sure we revere that day. And the, the former pagans come in, and they're now saved. They go, what's the big deal about the Sabbath? And Paul's saying, hey, listen, some of you have a conscience that, is, that really wants to make one day more important than the rest. And some of you could care less, and all the days are alike. Here's the principle he lays down. Look at it. See it in the verse, the second half of verse 5. Each one of you should be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, you have a conscience that God has given you, and that conscience has been shaped. And you are not to violate your conscience, and we are not to try to force others to violate theirs. It is wrong to violate your conscience. Look at verse 23. Skip down to chapter 14, verse 23. Whoever has doubts, he's speaking in the same context about what we should do in the gray areas. 
Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. You're not sure you should eat something? Uh, in this context, you're not sure if it violates any rules or laws. You're unsure. Whoever doubts is condemned. If you just run roughshod right over your conscience and you don't even care uh, what it's trying to tell you, that's, that's sin. He says it's condemned because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I once had a, a girl in the youth group back in an old church that came up to me and told me that she really loved watching horror movies. Just loved watching horror movies. But then she was also beginning to get concerned that it maybe wasn't the most helpful thing for her walk with the Lord. And so she asked me, you know, is it okay? I'm, I'm beginning to wonder. You know, I get images in my mind and, and I get, you know, I get scared sometimes. I stop, can't stop thinking about these things. Um, you know, I'm not sure if this is the right thing for me to do. And I said, you know what? I'm going to make it really simple for you. Let's just look at what Romans 14 says. Look at what it says. It says, each one should be fully convinced. Fully convinced. You go to uh, the verse 23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. In other words, uh, what I told her was, if you are doubting that this is good and right, if you're doubting, if you're wondering, if you're not sure, if you're starting to go, well, maybe this doesn't help me treasure Christ. Maybe this doesn't help me walk with the Lord. You know what? Here's the simple answer. Don't do it. Because your conscience is there for a reason. God has given you a conscience, and you're not just supposed to violate it. If your conscience is saying, I don't know about this, it might not be okay, listen, the Bible says stop. Don't do it. I think that to her might have sounded harsh or might have sounded too strict, or maybe she would have even counted that as legalistic. But I was trying to just ad accurately convey what Romans 14 is saying. If your conscience is, is sounding the alarm, beep, 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 don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, and you're going, well, the Bible isn't clear about whether I should or shouldn't. No, if you're not sure and you're wondering if it's sin, it is sin for you to do. It's wrong. And so on the other side of the coin, if you are trying to force someone to violate their conscience because you think it's right, we can use the horror movie example. If you're saying, hey, it's no big deal. The Bible never teaches anything about horror movies. You can go ahead and do it. Now, what we're doing is we're causing them to sin because we're telling them to violate their conscience. Now, what does that mean in today's world? Let's talk about masks, right? Masks. Take mask wearing, for instance. Imagine a Christian who believes it's his duty to wear a mask for the protection of people around him and he would feel like he's hurting people to take it off. That's what his conscience is telling him. If we were to force him or coerce him or pressure him to violate his conscience, we would be bringing him to stumble. We would be causing him to sin. And the same is true on the other side of the coin. If someone says, no, we need to take off our mask, we need to do this, this is the right thing for us to do. If there's pressure given to other Christians who feel it's right to wear the mask, well, what in that case? We are causing them to stumble if we're causing people to violate consciences. Now, play that out over all the gray areas of the Christian life. People have consciences shaped by different backgrounds and different upbringings. We are all united in the gospel, and yet we have different backgrounds. And so what we need to do is stand on the Word of God, which says, listen, each one needs to be convinced in his own mind. When it comes to gray areas, we don't pressure people to do it our way. 
and violate their conscience. That would be leading them to stumble into sin. So that's our fourth commitment. We are willing to say there are other Christian perspectives on this. That my way is not the only black and white right way. There are other perspectives. And that brings us to our fifth commitment. This is our last one. This is a very important one. Very important commitment we need to make. Commitment number five, I will assume the best motives of others. I will assume the best. Look at verse six. What's interesting to me is that Paul doesn't try to evaluate who's right and who's wrong in the scenarios he gives about the days and about eating. He doesn't try to do that. Watch what he does. He says, the one who eat or the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, what do they do? Abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. You know what Paul's doing there is he's, he's showing that each person is making their decision. Why? To honor the Lord. Now, they're making different decisions. You got that, right? One's honoring the day, one's not. One's eating a certain way, one's not. And yet they're doing it motivated by a heart that wants to please the Lord. And so what is the lesson for the church? It is this, is that we assume that people's motives, when they make decisions differently than ours, that they're doing so to honor the Lord. That's what they're doing. It is cancer in a church when everyone's suspicious that their motives are bad, that they're being selfish, that they're not caring about anyone else. Rather, the Christian way is to assume you've come to a different conclusion than me in a gray area, but like Paul's saying, I believe you're doing it to honor the Lord. Again, we're not saying everyone's right, that we're moral relativists and we just say everyone's right all the time. What we're saying is we need to start with a posture that believes the best, I believe this is a property of love to be charitable. Think about what 1 Corinthians 13 says. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. That is to say, if someone didn't do something your way, the way you thought it needed to be done, they did it differently, they came to a different conclusion, your immediate assumption should not be, they don't care. They're wrong. They're not loving their neighbor. They're careless about others. That should not be your snap judgment. What Paul is saying is, listen, people are trying to honor the Lord. They really are. Believe that. And they're going to come to different conclusions. And they might be wrong. And if they're wrong, well, then that doesn't mean you, you, you go and slap them over the head with the Bible and say, hey, get it right, man. It means you, you can talk to them about these things. You can ask questions. You can come alongside. You can help them understand. But you don't start by assuming the worst possible motive. That is not a way to live. In general, that is certainly not a way for the church to live. And I tell you, if you have, if we have this initial reaction of suspicion toward other church members, that will be a cancer in the church. That will be a cancer that divides and kills the church because it will be created. As C.S. Lewis once said, 
Suspicion creates what it suspects. We're always walking around suspicious of one another. It creates the division we suspect. What we actually are called to do is to, entrust, to trust people. That's what love does. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It believes that people are doing their best to honor the Lord. Let me ask you, when someone made a decision differently this last week, this last month, could be someone in your very own household, could be your very own spouse, could be someone in this church, they made a different response, they chose something different, is your snap judgment, immediate reaction, is they don't get it, they must not care, they don't love the Lord like I do, is your immediate judgment to assume motives? You've probably been told, never assume motives. I prefer we adjust it slightly to say never assume bad motives. Because I do think it's right to assume good motives. I think it's loving to assume good motives of the people God has put in our church and of people in general. Friends, there are issues we will not budge on right? There are absolutely black and white issues we will not compromise an inch on. But there are a lot of gray areas where Christians can come to different conclusions. There are opinions, as Paul says. What are we to do? Recognize those opinions exist. Don't be surprised by them. Don't see them as opportunities to divide. They're not. Paul clearly believed the church could be united in the midst of differing opinions. So what do we do? We don't quarrel, despise, or judge people. We welcome people. And what do we do? We leave the final evaluation in the Lord's hands. We're all going to give an account to God. He knows. Fourth, we, we don't pressure people to conform to our standards, our conscience. We don't try to force them to violate their own. And lastly, we assume the best motives. We start there. We start believing the best in people. Mark Dever is a pastor, and we're going to close with this, a pastor in Washington, D.C., where a lot of his church membership come, uh, and they're very much involved in the political dealings there on Capitol Hill. A lot of politicians in his church, a lot of people even on differing sides of differing opinions. One thing he likes to say, and I want to finish with this short quote, ringing in our ears. This is a very important concept that we need to really embrace. The Christ we share is more important than the politics we don't. The Christ we share is more important than the politics we don't. Whether or not we say the word politics or just use the word that the Bible uses, opinions, the idea is the same. We share Christ And that transcends and supersedes any opinion that we might differ from each other. Differing opinions is okay. It humbles us. It teaches us to love in ways that are challenging and stretching for us. It teaches us to assume the best. It really does good work in our own hearts when we are uniting with people who are not exactly like us. And you know what it does last of all? Is it accentuates the glorious power of the gospel that unites us together. See, the fact that we're all different different with different backgrounds and we can come together with even different opinions and rejoice in our Savior together 
It shows that our unity is not based on superficial things. It's based on Christ. And that's a testimony to the world. I'm going to pray. As I pray, Mark is going to come up. We're going to have some new members also come up. And then after that, we're going to, we're going to welcome them into membership, and we're going to have a baptism to close the service. Would you, would you join me in prayer? So, Father, thank you for the gospel that unites us. It reconciles us to you. It reconciles us to one another. It tears down barriers that would inhibit us from enjoying fellowship. And, Lord, we know that there are different opinions, and we're thankful that that doesn't mean there has to be division. Lord, every group of people, even if it's just two people, have different conclusions about things. That's okay, Lord. Help us to understand the deeper unity we have in the gospel. I pray that we would be so thrilled about what Christ has done that we would find that as our fundamental identity, that we'd experience a, a joyful, happy unity in the gospel. And Lord, I pray that you would enable us to uh, talk to people who are different from us, learn from them, under, seek to understand them, and that we would create a, a, a unity here that only the Spirit can really bring. And so that you are glorified and that we are blessed as we enjoy the fellowship of the church as you intended. Thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.